You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash futureinvestor slash radio. The heart of where innovation, money, and power collide in Silicon Valley and beyond. This is Bloomberg Technology with Caroline Hyde and Ed Ludlow. I'm Ed Ludlow in San Francisco. Caroline Hyde off this week. Welcome to Bloomberg Technology. Coming up, Silicon Valley Bank finds a buyer. We'll bring you the details of First Citizens' takeover and what it means for tech amid the biggest banking failure since the financial crisis. Plus, we'll get the outlook for tech stocks as Mike Wilson of Morgan Stanley warns of elevated risk in markets. We discuss with an even bigger Wall Street bear, Greg Bautle of BNP Paribas. And China wants to develop a business-friendly image, but how does the retreat of its biggest moguls impact the CCP's pitch to tech? We'll break it all down with the Bloomberg Big Take. Here's the picture in markets. Actually, we turned a corner in the last few minutes. NASDAQ 100 down 8 tenths of 1%. The Philadelphia Semiconductor Index down 1.3%. Tech really the underperformer. We saw some outperformance in banks on that relief with further citizens stepping in for SVB. At the short end of the curve, you see yields higher. Risk off going through to Bitcoin as well, down below 27,000 US dollars per token. This is a week where we're kind of angsty, right? We're waiting for an amount of Fed speak to come. The kind of narrative had changed Sunday night into Monday when it comes to the Fed. This terminal chart kind of tells the story with the yields moving in relation to S&P futures. We thought maybe we'd get a bullish tilt on the Fed. How much is this now about the strength in the economy versus the fight against inflation? That's kind of the macro picture here with the movers, Bloomberg's Katie Greifeld out in New York. Katie. Hi, Ed. Well, like you said, markets have turned a corner just in the last few minutes, but there is a lot of screen on the screen behind me. Let's start with Blackball. That is a tech company that works with nonprofits. The news today, why the stock is up nearly 12%, is that it rejected an unsolicited takeover bid from Clear Lake Capital for $71 a share. Blackball said that is too low. It looks like shareholders agree. Snap, too, having a good day, up about 3% or so. That's after Guggenheim raised its price target on the stock from $9 to $12. You can see shares are just around $12 right now, but even still a good day for Snap. And of course, the story of the day is really what's going on in the banks. Like you said, First Citizens, the big news there is that it's going to buy SVB, rather. There's a lot to like in that deal for First Citizens in particular. It's going to become one of the top 15 largest U.S. banks, according to Bloomberg Intelligence. Stock is absolutely flying right now, up 48%. And that's spurring a relief rally in the likes of 
of First Republic. Of course, there's a lot of questions still around this name, but you can see shares higher by about 16% at the moment. So banks are the big outperformer today. But if you look over the past month, it's a totally different story. You have energy, financials, leading losses. Financials in particular down almost 12%. On top, it's communication services and it's the tech names. And Ed, that's one of the more interesting details of the past month that we've lived through is that growth has really taken back the leadership crown from value. And it puts the Fed back firmly in focus. Bloomberg's Katie Greifeld, thank you so much. Let's stick with that top story. First Citizens has agreed to buy Silicon Valley Bank after the biggest U.S. bank failure in more than a decade. Here with the details on the transaction. Bloomberg Opinions, Ed Hammond. And Ed, what are the numbers behind this transaction? What have they agreed to? Numbers are very murky, Ed, at this point, uh, which is one of the interesting things, actually, when they put out the announcement this morning. It's very unclear sort of how it was being valued, what we should say in terms of, you know, normally it's quite simple. We say the acquirer has paid X in the, you know, the, the form of, 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 of these two things. In this case, there is a lot of moving parts. Really what the government are doing here is they're not looking for maximizing value. They're looking for what's going to be safest for the depositors, what's going to be safest for the banking system and indeed for the nation as a whole. So the way they've structured this is they've, they've kind of given a very, very good-looking deal to First Citizens. They've, they've positioned this in a way that First Citizens has a great shot at making this work. And I think what you saw in the, the share price reaction of First Citizens this morning was really extraordinary, uh, something I think in the 10 years uh, that I've covered m and I, I don't think I've ever seen a share price react quite like that when an acquirer announces a deal and you get a 50% run-up in the stock. I, I suppose what that right. reflects is the market and the investors in First Citizens are giving the management a huge amount of credibility to be able to integrate this successfully. What we've discussed on this program for the last two weeks is this is what the venture capital community wanted, right? They wanted a reincarnated form of Silicon Valley Bank to survive. Now the bigger picture is there's still a threat to that industry from markdowns because of what's happened in in the banking sector. Yeah, I think, I mean, look, there is a threat to the VC industry generally because I think they were shown to be uh, perhaps a, a little bit uh, incautious in the, in the amount of money that was in single institution, the amount of exposure they had to this single institution. Um, that will obviously continue to have ripple effects in the VC industry. I think generally, you know, you're seeing it in some of the bank stocks this morning and over the last few days, there is some recovery of sentiment around the, the banking industry and, and indeed the regional banks in, in this country. Um, but look, it's, right. make no doubt about it. It's, it's still going to be an issue. This is by no means the end of the, um, the, the concern right. in the banking sector. All right, Bloomberg's Ed Hammond, thank you. We've got some breaking headlines crossing the Bloomberg terminal. Disney has begun the first round of the 7,000 job cuts that it announced in early February. In a memo that Bob Iger, the CEO, has sent to staff, they say that the first wave of those impacted will come in the next few days with a larger wave of layoffs to happen in April. Reminder that this is a, a job cut, 7,000 or so layoffs as part of a broader plan to target 5.5 billion dollars of cost savings that was announced when Iger took the reins of the company again back earlier this year. But this is a staggered approach that Disney's taken. So the first round of layoffs to be sort of initiated in the next few days, a bigger wave to come in April. We'll continue tracking that story. Shares not moving hugely in response, up seven tenths of one percent. Turning now to the equity market and the tech sector more broadly, Mike Wilson and Morgan Stanley warning that repricing of that sector will elevate risk for the broader market. Our view is that 
uh, there's going to be probably be more cost cutting in that space because the malinvestment was just so egregious and the over earning was even worse. So I think it's just going to be kind of a drip, drip, drip. Um, you know, my, my suspicion is you know, markets tend to figure this out ahead of the actual numbers coming down. And because the bond market just repriced itself overnight, we think that risk for the equity market is elevated now more than it's been for the last six or 12 months. For more on markets, we're joined by Greg Bout of BNP Paribas, head of U.S. equity and derivative strategy. Greg, let's go straight back to that breaking news on Disney carrying out previously announced layoffs, adding to layoffs from some of the mega cap tech names. What's your read on that? What does it tell you about the health of the economy that we're in right now? I think it tells you something a little bit about maturing of the current cycle. We have a view that last year the equity market was very much driven by the repricing of rates, putting pressure on PE multiples. What we think the story this year for the broader equity market and tech more specifically is the second order effects of higher rates feeding into the real economy. And that takes the case, that takes the form of a more kind of recessionary type backdrop. And that's one where job cuts are certainly on the agenda. I think what we're talking about are signs of stress. You know, look at inversion in the yield curve as well, the, the potential of a downturn. Look at the VIX, for example. When you look at those data sets, what's the conclusion you're drawing? Um, for us, we would describe it as recessionary price action. We saw an absolutely massive couple of days spike in the VIX. If you look at the VIX, which is essentially the VIX of the VIX, the price of VIX optionality, we had an absolutely explosive 50-point uh, day move higher there. We look at the bond market, and we also see some massive shifts in pricing over the last two weeks. So it looks like recessionary price action. But when you compare that to what we've seen from the broader equity markets, the S&P, we haven't even had a more than 2% down day in the S&P this year. So there's definitely some bifurcation and different messages coming from different asset classes. The behavior, Greg, of mega cap tech is so interesting right now. Apple down 1.2% in the session, but Friday closing at September high, two consecutive weekly gains, and actually it trails the pack of mega cap tech names. They're kind of behaving like non-risky assets. Why is that? That's, that's exactly what we're seeing. So this benign backdrop for the broader index is being driven by this decorrelation between tech or sectors like tech, comm sector, and the rest of the market. We're essentially seeing them not act as risky assets. Essentially what the market is doing at the moment is taking the repricing of rates and saying discount rates are materially lower, therefore PE multiples should be higher, but assuming that in a vacuum, not looking for a repricing of the growth prospects for these stocks. You know, our view is inherently they are a huge part of the real economy. They're tied to the outlook for the real economy. The reason the rates market and the volatility market is pricing in a more cautious outlook is because the news flow we've seen over the last two weeks is troubling. That's the joy, Greg, of having a technology-focused show. We can talk about tech for an entire hour if we want, but I think the point that you're making is that not all tech is created equally, especially when you look from a valuations perspective. There are corners of the sector that actually have become a bit too expensive at this stage. Yeah, absolutely. Um, When we talk about tech, it's hard to talk about tech as a single sector. It's an absolutely massive slice now of the U.S. equity market. And when we think about certain tech stocks, like some of the larger tech stocks that make up the index, we see these as kind of good quality stocks that might be expensively valued but have very sound balance sheets. We think the outlook for those stocks is potentially materially different to more cyclical stocks. And that, in turn, is pretty different to some of the more speculative stocks that have uh, a lack of free cash flow, a lack of of earnings um, and do have leverage on the balance sheet. So we think the outlook for those stocks and how they could react to different market regimes is potentially uh, pretty, pretty bifurcated. Greg, how 
frustrated are you with the Federal Reserve's messaging right now? Uh, I'm not frustrated with their messaging. I think they have an incredibly uh, hard position to try and navigate. On the one hand, they have these ongoing inflationary measures. It wasn't long ago that we were talking about the prospect for a 50 bips uh, rate hike. And then suddenly we were looking to emergency measures and what the Fed could do in this more difficult environment. So the Fed are really stuck between a rock and a hard place. So I think that we have a lot of sympathy for them in their current predicament. Um, and it's one of the reasons why we're cautious in the equity market. You know, we think that on the one hand, the Fed might induce a recession this year, and that is something that's going to be bad for risky assets, and tech is a risky asset at heart. Um, or if we get a better economic outlook in the short term and growth surprises on the upside, then we think the Fed will tighten. And again, I don't think that's something that uh, tech valuations where they are can really sustain. Greg Bautel, BNP Paribas, thank you so much for your time. Let's get back to that news on Disney. Headlines crossing the Bloomberg terminal. Disney has begun that previously announced round of layoffs, the 7,000 job cuts that it says it was doing back in February. The first wave of employees impacted will be notified in the next four days. Then a second wave will come in April, impacting several thousand workers. That according to a memo that CEO Bob Iger sent to staff Monday morning. The last of those workers affected will be notified before the summer. A reminder, this is part of a much broader plan to target about $5.5 billion of saving the stock kind of holding at seven-tenths of a percent higher, no sort of big knee-jerk reaction to the headlines. But again, these were cuts that were announced back in February. Now, turning to another story we're watching in the tech space, Huawei. The Chinese telecoms company has developed software tools capable of designing chips as advanced as 14 nanometers, advancing efforts to help Chinese companies sidestep U.S. sanctions and replace American technology. Huawei is among many Chinese hardware technology providers working to replace sanctioned U.S. components and software from AI chips to EDA tools. The newest Bloomberg big take, Alibaba founder Jack Ma has resurfaced in China after months of overseas travel. He's considered to be Beijing's best chance at repairing its reputation with the private sector in China and beyond. Here to discuss the latest big take, Bloomberg Opinions, Alex Webb. And Alex, I find this really interesting. We've just had the China Development Forum in China, basically a pitch for the economy after the lifting of COVID zero restrictions. And in the same weekend, the kind of poster child of Chinese tech returns to the country. Tell us the story. It's, I mean, it's a really fascinating piece from our colleagues in China. You know, Jack Ma, the founder, chairman of Alibaba, for, you know, well, always still the founder, but was forced to step down after criticizing elements of the Chinese regulatory regime. And what we've seen now is that according to Bloomberg's reporting, they've been trying to bring him back in in terms of promoting Chinese interests, in terms of saying, you know, China's open to business, particularly in the tech space, and he has resisted some of those calls, which says a lot clearly about how perhaps desperate China is getting to really boost that tech space, which drove a huge pillar of growth for a very long time. They now realize how badly they need it as, as growth in general slows a bit. The focus of the reporting has been the economy since the lifting of COVID-0 in December. But actually, for Xi Jinping, there's kind of this balance between ideology and tech-friendly policy, reversing some not-tech-friendly policy in the past. How's that playing out for the tech sector in China? 
the thing that is interesting is while he is you know trying to give the tech economy a, a new lease of life the situation has changed they are not the sort of untrammeled uh, government-supported entities that they once were, they are getting a little bit more government influence in actually how they're run. So they have, you know, the government is taking golden shares in some companies to influence the way they're administered and particularly what they do with data. There was reporting that uh, for a long time, or in the Chinese authorities were becoming increasingly concerned about firms such as Alibaba because they had a huge, right. huge influence on Chinese daily life, and they also had a huge amount of data that could be useful for government, but they didn't want it being too much under the control of private companies. All right, thanks to Bloomberg's Alex Webb over in London. Now let's get back to that breaking Disney news. The company's begun the first of what it was expected to be 7,000 job cuts, a key part of a $5.5 billion savings drive the company announced back in February. Geeta Ranganathan of Bloomberg Intelligence joins me now with more. We knew this was coming and they are enacting those layoffs. Good news for the stock, right? Yes, this was very much uh, expected. Uh, I mean, we have about $5.5 billion, as you just mentioned, in cost cuts. About $3 billion of those are from um, content savings, but about $2.5 billion are going to be from the non-content part of it, so the SG&A, and of course the, uh, the headcount reduction is part of that. Again, 7,000 employees, that's uh, about 4% of their global workforce. Uh, but the important thing is that the cost cuts are underway, and this is really important uh, you know, for them to get back to profitability. That is really restoring the magic for uh, Disney. Disney shares now higher by a percentage point, those gains accelerating. Ike is saying that there will be a smaller wave of cuts in the next four days, several thousand in April when it will be concluded by the summer. Geetha, why is it important that this is done quickly? Yeah, it is. It's really important because of all of the, uh, you know, the, the whole narrative now shifting so quickly to profitability. Uh, for the longest time, Ed, this was always about this, you know, streaming subscribers, getting the maximum number of subscribers. But now, obviously, the new narrative has been, uh, you know, that focus on profitability. Uh, and for that, obviously, they have identified so many different cost cuts in different parts of the organization. It's important for them to get this done quickly because they're also uh, undergoing a larger structural reorganization uh, they're trying to simplify the entire operations with just yes. you know ESPN becoming its own uh, segment so it's important to kind of get everything uh, all their ducks in a row before uh, you know going ahead to Wall Street and telling them telling the street that uh, things are really taking shape Keith Ranganathan of Bloomberg Intelligence with a quick reaction. Thank you so much. Now, coming up, a strong 2023 fiscal report coming out of Salesforce has led to Elliott Investment Management backing off. Details on why the activist investor will not proceed with its planned director nominations next. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop. Customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. 
And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash futureinvestor slash radio. Time now for Talking Tech. Security researchers at Moscow-based Kaspersky Lab have found potential malware in versions of Pindodo days after Google suspended it from its Android app store. The cybersecurity firm says it found evidence that earlier versions of Pindodo exploited system software vulnerabilities to install backdoors and gain unauthorized access to user data and notifications. Plus, TikTok's possible acquisition by an Oracle or a Microsoft could be its nearest escape hatch from U.S. government scrutiny. However, the price of the social platform could come at a lower cost. That's compared to Twitter's own valuation right down to just 55% of last year's deal value or $20 billion, according to research by Bloomberg Intelligence. And speaking of Twitter, the social media company is looking for whoever leaked parts of its proprietary source code. The code was posted on GitHub, the widely used code repository that's now owned by Microsoft. GitHub complied with Twitter's request to remove the data. Twitter now wants GitHub to identify anyone who posted or downloaded or uploaded its code. Meanwhile, Salesforce has an agreement with Elliott investment management, the activist investor, which will now not go ahead with a plan to nominate directors. Bloomberg's Brody Ford has the story. And Brody, you and I were talking about this earlier. It's kind of a case of Mark Benioff lives to fight another day, right? Absolutely. I mean, when an activist comes in, and they were very positive on Benioff from the get-go, but when an activist comes in, the odds of a CEO getting kicked out it's on the table, right? Um, Salesforce has had a pretty rough six months. They saw that dangerous cocktail of slowing growth and increased calls for boosted margins. And so everybody was kind of watching to see what Mark Benioff would do. But in the most recent earnings report, they pretty much blew everybody's expectations out of the water. And so this is one of those rare cases where an activist like Elliot, that's known for being pretty active, uh, decided to say, well, we're happy with what's happening at this point, and we're going to take a step back without a concession like a board seat or management changes. This is a stock that's up more than 40% so far in 2023. That's the share performance story. What is the outlook for Salesforce right now? How is the business doing? Yeah, as I said, it is facing its slowest revenue growth pretty much in its history. This is a company that's very famous for lavish spending, for big acquisitions. 
But like many other tech peers, it's said right now that its big focus is on profitability. Um, that means it's closing offices. It laid off 8,000 people earlier in the year. Even stuff as minute as saying, we want less salespeople on each deal because we had just a ton of people hired. And I mean, that's music to the ears of a lot of investors who've been saying, hey, your profit margin is maybe 10 percentage points slower than a company like Oracle or your other kind of more mature software players. So the outlook, I think, at the very least, a lot of analysts would say uh, much more positive today than maybe six months ago. I think after Salesforce reported earnings, Elliott was quite positive, but kind of hinted that they wanted to see more. And yep. I guess they did. Thanks to Bloomberg's Brody Ford out in New York on all things Salesforce. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Ed Ludlow in San Francisco. A rare IPO, Presight AI, a data analytics firm owned by Abu Dhabi's G42, drew orders worth $28.5 billion for its $496 million IPO. That's the latest sign of strong demand for Middle East offerings. The listings will be Abu Dhabi's second of the year and was oversubscribed by a factor of 136 times. Let's stick with AI. Databricks has launched an AI language model that it says developers can easily replicate to build their own chat GPT-like apps. Joining us now with all the details, Databricks CEO Ali Godsey. Ali, first question, simple. Why is it called Dolly? Well, because Dolly was the first clone uh, of a cheap and... Dolly, the open source large language model that we released, is very, very similar. It's almost like a clone of these existing other models. But its main difference is it only costs us $30 to produce it and using just three machines, whereas all these other things that it's a clone of have been using hundreds of thousands of hours, and they've been trained on trillions of trillions of documents. You know, So it's, uh, that, that's, that's what we call it, Dolly. It also kind of sounds like Doll-E the product uh, that uh, was put out by OpenAI. Okay, okay. So a more narrow data set. You've talked about the price comparison, but think about the technology. What are the similarities and differences between what you think is capable with your LLM versus literally what ChatGPT is offering now? Yeah, I think the key point, the thing that kind of took us all by surprise in November last year when ChatGPT came out, was this ability to have this kind of human interaction where it's going back and forth and reasoning with you. And that people thought you need tens of thousands of machines and lots of money, billions. And that's the thing that we kind of did for $30. So that's the thing that uh, actually, frankly, surprised us. Uh, but the key thing here is that we open sourced it, so anyone can actually use this. Any enterprise, any organization can use that, and they can own the model themselves. Whereas with OpenAI and these other models, those are proprietary and owned by a specific company like OpenAI or Anthropic or Cohere. Let's go deep, deep here into the nitty gritty alley. This is a years old large language model, LLM, right? Talk to me about the architecture. Okay. But things are moving really fast right now. What is the architecture this is based on? Rachel Metz, who's just joined us at Bloomberg News, she is everything AI, really, really following her work closely. She's basically asking me the question, is this a generative system using transformer architecture? What is new here? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, it is using transformer architecture, which is the sort of secret sauce behind these LLMs. Uh, it is generative model. Uh, it's just quite small, 
and it hasn't been trained on lots of lots of documents and not a lot of money has been spent on it. So we think that the secret sauce here lies in this small data set that we trained it on. So we had a data set with questions of answers of how humans like to have this kind of dialogue that you and I are having. And that small data set apparently is the secret sauce. And it turns out that maybe you don't need these huge models. Maybe the industry has been going in the wrong direction, training bigger and bigger models and spending more and more money. All you just need is this specific data set, right. and that's when you crack the code on this human interaction. I, I, I tweeted that you were coming on the show, and one of the audience questions was about the ethical considerations around this. Essentially, they're asking how Databricks approaches the ethical side of what it's offering. Yeah, that's super important to us, of course. Uh, we think that the best way is for the community to collaborate on an open model that we can actually understand, where you have the source code to it, rather than it being locked down somewhere. So we think overall, uh, you know, it's super, super important that we do research on the ethical aspects of this, but let it be open. So open sourcing it is actually really, really critical and making sure that every organization can have these so they can understand what they're doing with their data and understand what their model is doing when it's generating responses rather than it's coming out of a black box API that's somewhere else that you don't actually have control over. Only very few companies, right. say a handful, have control over it. Ali, there's just in, intense interest in this space right now. You heard us talk about pre-site and its oversubscribed IPO over in Abu Dhabi. Will Databricks IPO when the window opens fully? Yeah, that's a stepping stone for us that will pass. We're more excited. We think over the next 10 years, this stuff is going to have huge impact. And there's no doubt for us that Databricks will be an immensely successful company on its own right over the next decade or so. So the IPO is just a stepping stone. We're not super obsessed with whether it happens in the next six months or you know, a year or whatever it is, right? We, we will uh, do that when the market conditions are appropriate. But you could do it within the next 12 months. You could be ready. I mean, we are ready already, right? We, you know, we've said we've already shared we're over a billion revenue, we're six thousand employees. You know, we have the finances, so we're operating. You know, even though we're private as a public company. Final question on Dolly: If you make Dolly cheaper than what's out there, what is the risk that it opens up access to bad actors? Yeah, look, I think the ethical aspects of this are super important. I just think these models, like Dolly, are super powerful and they can help us do things better. They can help us make education way better, healthcare way better, housing way better, right? So they're going to be great for humanity, but bad actors can also use it to do bad things, you know? Uh, not just Dolly, any of these models, any machine learning, any technology can be used by the good guys and the bad guys. And I think, A, we need regulation, and two, we need to understand how these models work. And the best way to do that is by opening them up and having them be open sourced rather than them being proprietary so that every company right. can leverage this technology. Because we think in every industry in the next decade, the winners are going to be data and AI companies. It doesn't matter which industry or vertical, they're all going to be data and AI leaders, and they're going to be leveraging this kind of technology. So let's open it up and understand what they're doing. All right, Databricks CEO Ali Godsey, come back and tell us how that progresses over the next year. Thank you very much. Now, speaking of IPOs, Oyo Hotels is reducing the shares it aims to sell via a stock market debut by about two-thirds, an effort by its founder to get the sale done even after tech valuations have plunged. The once high-flying company, backed by SoftBank, is preparing to file a fresh initial public offering document as soon as this week. In the filing, Oyo outlined plans to sell just a third of the new shares it originally planned, eroding the amount of fresh capital it's expected to receive. 
Now, coming up, we turn to backers of Silicon Valley in our VC Spotlight feature and speak to Elodie Dupuis, Fullin Partners founder and managing partner. And I want to keep track of two specific stocks, Pinterest climbing after UBS raised its price target and its buy rating on what it sees as advertising growth. And then Roku also jumping after Susquehanna upgraded the stock on what it sees as long-term drivers. Two movers to the upside in Monday's session when it comes to tech. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop. Customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash FutureInvestor slash radio. Time for VC Spotlight. Let's get an inside look at the venture firms powering growth out here in Silicon Valley. Joining us now, Elodie Dupuis, Fall In Partners founder and managing partner. Let's start on the news of the day. First Citizens coming in uh, to buy part of SVB's deposit book. You know, you, uh, you and your, your company and portfolio companies have some exposure to SVB. What do you make of the outcome? Uh, I think it's not surprising. Uh, we were all hoping that somebody would come in and buy the bank just so that those relationships can continue. Um, in terms of Fullin's exposure, you know, we, we work a lot with bootstrapped companies, and so they aren't really the core market for Silicon Valley Bank. So we didn't have um, nearly as much exposure as some of our peers in the industry, which was lucky for us. But I think this is a good outcome in terms of making sure that that stability that was there for a long time continues uh, for folks going forward. Though I do expect to see a change in underwriting uh, policies around what profile of companies can get debt and on what terms relative to what we were seeing in the past. Elodie, in every coffee meeting I've had, every phone call of the last two weeks, you know, VCs remind me that they're investing on a 10-year time horizon, right? But what have you made of the last couple of weeks? What do you think the impact's been to how you go about doing business? Great question. So I think there are groups out there that have been relying on debt either as part of their initial investment strategy or uh, more recently, we were hearing this in the last, call it six to eight months. You know, there was a correction that happened in the public markets about a year ago, and it's taken some time for that correction to materialize in private market valuations. Uh, we were looking at companies over the last two quarters 
Um, and anytime we talked about, you know, their need for potential cash going forward, we got a lot of responses around, we would rather take on debt than take on a down round. Um, I suspect for those types of groups, that game is ended now, and they're going to have to be some corrections on the on the private side uh, valuation. So from our perspective, um, it's sort of an overdue correction that we've been waiting for for the last, you know, couple quarters, maybe a little bit longer. Um, in yeah. terms of how it impacts, oh, go ahead. No, no, it's just, I just, I wanted to jump in and ask, you know, in that vein, what a term sheet looks like right now, because there were all these kind of big picture themes that we talked about January through early February, you know, bigger checks uh, at slightly earlier stages, right? If you think series mm-hmm. B, that kind of all went away amid, you know, the, right. the tighter financial conditions conversation when SVB collapsed. What are you seeing in the term sheets that, that are coming across your desk? Uh, so I would say I see it less in the term sheets other than, you know, valuations have rationalized compared to where they were in the last 18 to 24 months. I would say the largest change that we're seeing is actually um, a better alignment, I would call it, between founders and investors. So for the last few years, uh, there's been a narrative in the market that more money at a higher valuation is the way to showcase founder friendliness. I think founders have uh, woken up to the reality that taking on more money at higher terms doesn't necessarily play to their benefit in the long run. Um, And we're starting to see a lot of founders who are asking more around, how do you really partner with us as organizations and as individuals? What type of value add are you bringing beyond uh, a capital check? And so um, that focus on partnership combined with more rational valuations is definitely what we're seeing these days. Did, Did you just use the term founder friendly? I did. I think I've heard that before in the last few weeks and months. What does it mean? Uh, Look, we've had a very specific definition of it here at Fullin, which was um, a dedication to making sure the companies that we partner with have all of the uh, resources and opportunity to succeed. And for us, that's always meant we make sure that there's clear alignment between us as an investor and the company and the founders going in. So that doesn't necessarily mean the highest valuations. It means the right amount of capital for the strategy that they're looking to enact. Um, I do think we've, we've seen a game of let's raise as much as we can at the highest price and getting to a billion as fast as possible is the right thing for us. That's the piece that has really fundamentally changed in terms of a definition of founder friendly where folks now are realizing, you know, if you're crushed under 300, $400 million of preference stack at a valuation that you're going to take four years to climb yourself out of, that's not a very friendly place to be. Um, And so that is really changing the definition or, or what founders are looking for in terms of being more thoughtful, asking more questions of the investors in terms of what do you do to help your companies? How are you playing this longer? You know, to your point, it is a 10 year game, right? Um, But it's a 10 year game if the company can live for 10 years, if they're going to run out of cash in 18 months, because there isn't the proper um, partnership at the board level where investors are really, you know, challenging the founders as opposed to just letting them run wild. I think that's a big piece of what we're seeing change in the market. And the health of the startups themselves, Fullin's really focused on uh, software in particular, but also e-commerce, right. mobile applications. What are you excited about right now? Well, I think if you're uh, an investor who's been through a downturn, then you kind of know what's coming, which is, uh, again, a, a closer alignment on entry point between funds and the companies that they work with. Um, there are a lot of counter-cyclical businesses out there that do very well in these kinds of times. So we're familiar with a business that enables you to sell your old clothes uh, via a mobile app to others uh, on the platform. That's a kind of company that can do reasonably well in good times. Um, but as you know, economic pressures start to mount, 
folks may be looking for a way to make more money. And so they're more eager to part ways with items of clothing they haven't worn recently. And similarly, if you're looking to save money, maybe you're going to be looking to buy secondhand instead of buying firsthand. So that's an example of the type of countercyclical businesses that we would see come out of these times. I think um, more broadly, when you have more pressure economically and you have less capital going into the market, you start to see a lot of small advantages. So you're able to hire better talent for a more rational price. You're able to um, get more bang for your buck when it comes to marketing and all of your dollars don't just go to you know the Facebook and Googles of the word. Um, so I do think that you'll start to see businesses be able to actually be built more efficiently right. than we've seen in the last few years. All right, Elodie Dupuis, Fulham Partners founder and managing partners. Interesting firm, you know, looking at early growth, looking globally, not just the US, but Europe, Israel as well. Get you back on the program. Thank you. It's back. And it's going viral. I'm talking about HBO's hit series, Succession, of course. Out with its final season, the Roy family comes in on episode one and everyone is swinging. No spoilers here. While we're still waiting on those viewership numbers, Succession stands as one of the top series coming out of the Warner Brothers platform. However, it does have some big shoes to fill. Earlier this year, like The Last of Us, for example, made its debut and the series premiere garnered 4.7 million US viewers. The biggest premiere in HBO history with nearly 10 million viewers... House of the Dragon. Now, meanwhile, Apple CEO Tim Cook met China's Minister of Commerce, coming at a time of heightened tensions between Washington and Beijing. Bloomberg's Mark Gurman joins us now with the detail. Mark, I think if I'm right, this is the first time Tim Cook's been to mainland China, at least since pre-pandemic levels. What did he discuss with the Chinese Commerce Minister? It's very possible that Cook has been there multiple times, right, since the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, but in terms of one of these, I call state visits, right, where it's all very publicized, where he's speaking publicly. Uh, the last one we do know about, or we can remember, is actually from 2019, right, where he spoke at the same conference, right, that economic state-sponsored uh, state uh, conference. So you've seen him post pictures from Apple retail stores in Beijing. Uh, you've seen him speak at that conference. He talked about having a symbiotic uh, relationship with China where both have grown together over the past few decades or so, right, in terms right. of that partnership there. Uh, in terms of the meetings, he discussed regulatory matters, he discussed the supply chain. Uh, it's very important, you know, for Apple to have a positive relationship with the Chinese government. Uh, as you probably know, Apple is the unique American technology company to essentially have free reign in China, right? They can operate most of their online services. They can sell all of their hardware products. They can yes. operate their about 30 retail stores. Meta, Amazon, the other big ones, they simply don't have uh, that luxury in China. The, the supply chain part's fascinating because that word was in the statement from the Chinese ministry. In your latest podcast, you, you discuss this idea about longer term Apple moving its supply chain dependence from China. It doesn't make sense anymore for Apple to be so tied to, to one country, right? I mean, there are so many concerns in, in terms of U.S. and Chinese tensions, right? There's the human rights aspect. There's the communism aspect, right? There are so many reasons uh, why Apple may not want to do all of its business in China. But beyond that, right, there's also the factor that some of these Chinese laws and regulations over the last several years or so have created product delays. 
iPhone 14 Pro shipments right. at the end of last year, MacBook Air shipments in the middle of last year, right? These are due to some of those COVID zero policies. So there's a little bit of unpredictability there, right? And potential volatility, which could hurt Apple's underlying business, which requires shipping tens of millions of units of their latest devices. Mark, really, really quick, in your latest Power On newsletter, you talk about uh, AR, VR. What's the main takeaway that readers should know about? Yeah, Apple's mixed reality headset, first major product since the Apple Watch, will be announced in June at the Worldwide Developers Conference. Uh, and that is going to be a big test for the company, right, if this could be a hit. It's still a nascent category. Uh, inside the company, they believe this could play out similarly to the Apple Watch. So maybe a bit of a, you know, a dud at first, but over time become a major hit. All right, Bloomberg's Mark Gurman on all things Apple out of LA. Thank you. Now, that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. Don't forget, so much to recap with the podcast wherever you find your podcast: Apple, Spotify, iHeart, and on the Bloomberg Terminal. Quick check-in on markets. Tech, now really the underperformer in Monday's session. Look at the tech-heavy Nasdaq, off by half a percentage point, while the S&P 500 up by two-tenths of one percent. A lot of that story, of course, to do with the relief in the U.S. banking sector, but also some tech movers in the S&P 500 as well. The other thing to take note on is all the Fed speak come this week here on Bloomberg Technology. This is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.